If you have your Bibles handy, you can turn to Genesis chapter 3 this morning. Spiritual warfare. Today we begin a mini-series on spiritual warfare. It has been apparent throughout most of the last year, and indeed into this year, that there's been a great deal of spiritual attack, spiritual discouragement, spiritual confusion, not only in our midst, but indeed in the nation itself. There's always a battle raging in the spirit realm over men, over nations, over times, over seasons, over epochs and ages of history. But there are times within the scope of our temporal history when it seems as though the forces of light or the forces of darkness make unique pushes or encroachment into a certain civilization or into a certain time. There are times uh, where, in, in the sense of a war, there are individual battles, and within the course of those battles, times where the enemy advances or, or where um, the, the allies advance, where, where lines get weaker or where lines are shored up, times when the battle is intense, and other times when the battle can experience a sort of a pause, a bit of a lull. And uh, anyone who's studied any measure of um, military uh, history or, or knows how battles work, uh, it's not as if a war is just constant fighting, right? Uh, there are lulls. There are times there are individual battles, and in between those battles, you're positioning, you are preparing, you are waiting, uh, you are, you are um, uh, healing, <laughs> you're recovering. You're, uh, 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 th there was a time until not too long ago where in the winter, battles would just stop. Everyone would, would hunker down for the winter, and then you'd pick up again in the spring. Uh, and what an interesting thing. You think about that, right? You're literally fighting a war uh, over over territory and, and, and your lives are at stake and your nation's at stake and you just take like a four-month break. Uh, but, but you would because it's winter and, and they didn't have the means by which to, to continue those, those battles. And so you have these sorts of things that, that ebb and they flow and it's the same in the spirit realm. And this past year has been an intense year. It's been a year of battle. It's been a year where, the, the, where there has been a... a a real fight on our hands. And of course, whenever a battle, either physical or spiritual, becomes intense, one of the things you can know for sure is that there will be casualties. And it is my deepest desire that we have a church that is strong, well-trained, guarded, that the spiritual casualties of this perilous time might be minimal among this fellowship of believers. So for the next several months. It's actually looking to be about 14 weeks uh, in our study. Um, we're going to focus on spiritual warfare. And this week, I simply want to begin by introducing us to the topic. I say simply, uh, this is going to be a big message. It's going to be a little bit longer. I hope to not make it too long, um, but there's going to be a lot here. It's somewhat of a two-part message this week and next week, walking through some introductory foundational material. I, I always struggle with, with um, topical sermons or topical series in this regard, or even not, sometimes not topical series, in this regard that there's a lot that one needs to know before one steps into topical study because we're founding it upon various uh, doctrines and various thoughts. And so I'm going to spend the next two weeks founding us in a way that when we get to all of the practical material about how to fight this warfare, how to identify the enemy, how to identify his tactics, and then how to take those steps of fighting back against the enemy, the spiritual enemy, by the way. We're talking about Satan. We're not talking about humans. When we're fighting this battle, we know how to fight it properly. We need to begin here because not everyone feels the need to fight this battle. Not everyone even knows that the spiritual battle exists. And if you don't know the spiritual battle exists, you're not going to feel the need to fight it. Many of us, even though it do know it exists, struggle to keep it on the forefront of our mind. At best, it's kind of like white noise humming behind us all the time, rarely in our thoughts, rarely in our priorities. And in one sense, this is okay because it's just as much a temptation to put too much effort or too much thought or too much priority on the nature of the spiritual battle, and then we become unbalanced the other way, right? In that pendulum swing of life, the spiritual battle, we want to find ourselves in the nice balance where we identify the spiritual battle, we're fighting the spiritual battle, but we're not seeing the devil around every rock or around every corner and behind every rock. I guess that would be how you say it. But we also don't want to ignore it and pretend it's not happening. 
So I'd like for us to take a bit of a survey today of biblical teachings regarding the nature of spiritual warfare. Uh, we're not going to be able to get through nearly as much as I'd like to get through, but I don't want this to go on forever, so we're going to pick and choose a little bit here. Walk through a couple of Old Testament, a couple of New Testament ideas, the scope and the limitations of the spiritual battle, and then once we've established the reality, next week we're going to talk about the big picture of this spiritual battle, Satan's kingdom, God's kingdom, what's happening. It's going to be a message similar to one that I preached at the beginning of our Revelation series in February of 2018. So if you're around for that, some of this might be familiar. And once we've established the reality of what's going on and the big picture of what's going on, then we'll walk through the battlegrounds upon which we fight. And we'll talk about tactics, the enemy's tactics and our own, the weapons which he uses and the weapons at our disposal. So it is that we begin with the nature of the war itself. A couple of weeks ago in our evening service, we studied a little bit about angels. If you were not here for that and you are not privy to the topic of angels and what they are and who they are and what they're about, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that message. I should probably do one uh, on uh, Satan and his uh, minions specifically at some point. I have done a couple throughout the years on that which are online if you want to uh, find those as well. Uh, when it comes time in a little bit to consider their power and their capabilities, um, we will need some of this foundational idea about angels. And within that message that I talked about a couple of weeks ago on Sunday evening uh, in our Hebrew series, we did spend a little bit of time, though the focus was upon elect angels or, 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 or God's angels, we spent a little bit of time talking about fallen angels and the nature of demons. We, uh, when, when we wanted to understand the capabilities of angels, we actually don't get a, a great deal of insight into their capabilities from interactions with elect angels. They show up, they, they, they uh, give glory to God, they, they leave a message. From time to time we see things such as when those two angels were in Sodom and Gomorrah and they struck uh, the men with blindness. Uh, so we see some of their capabilities, but we really see more of the power of angelic beings from the power of demonic beings because they're the ones that are exercising it more overtly within our world. But what that study established and what I'm going to take for granted a bit this morning is that there exists in the realm of the spiritual created beings known as angels. Elect angels are servants of the living God endowed with powers and capabilities to move throughout their, both the realm of the spiritual and the realm of the physical, and they exist explicitly and exclusively to accomplish the will of God. Fallen angels, often called demons, are servants of Satan. They are the enemy of God. The he is the father of lies. He is the great accuser of the brethren. We'll talk more about him at a later date. These fallen angels were initially created to serve God, but they operate in rebellion, having fallen with Lucifer, and work now to resist the will of God, to thwart the purposes of God, and to destroy the people of God. And what we're going to do today is explore times when the Bible peels back this curtain, not specifically to reveal the existence of these spiritual beings, which we've already talked about, but specifically to understand the conflict that exists between God, his angels, and his followers, and Satan, his demons, and his followers. So let's begin. And we begin at the beginning. Our first introduction to the spiritual conflict in the Bible is also the first battle over the crown of God's creation. That would be us. That would be humanity. Humans were created in what I often term unconfirmed holiness. We were created in a state of sinfulness, but we were created in a state of sinfulness that had never been tested. We were given a volition, but our volition had never yet been tested at the time of our creation. And so we were sinless. We did not have a sin nature. We had never once sinned and so that we could have right fellowship with God. We were holy, but we were unconfirmed in our holiness. We had never exercised our will one way or another yet as it relates to our holiness. And as we've spoken so many times, God needed to allow a test to come about. He needed to prove mankind because God did not create humans simply to serve him like automatons. God created humans in his image after his likeness, unlike any other element in his creation, because God created us to have a personal relationship with him. And that personal relationship he designed to be built upon love. And love, as we know it defined in the Bible, is not an emotion. Love is a choice. A choice to do what is best for another 
regardless of self-interest and regardless of circumstances. To this end, if God wanted us to love him and to have a personal relationship with him built on love, then he had to give mankind a choice. If he did not give mankind a choice, then he could never prove our love, which means we would not have a relationship built on love. So God put the first humans, Adam and Eve, into a garden where they were given everything that they needed for their wellness and contentment. But he also put in that garden a prohibition that they must not eat of a singular tree, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A choice given with the intent of proving their love, knowing that the thing which God withheld from them, the fruit of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, while in its own way was something interesting, something unique, something empowering, something desirable, the knowledge of good and evil, moral agency, it was also something that by God's testimony was not what was best for them. So were they going to go after that thing which in itself had perceived benefit? Or were they going to trust the Lord that though it had a perceived benefit, it was not his will for them and it was not what was best for them? Far better that they would choose simply to love and to trust God and in doing so, rest under his perfect care and his perfect provision. So Satan, as we considered a couple of weeks ago on Sunday night, was an anointed cherub. He was a part of, we, we classify angels, we don't know exactly how, uh, how clear these classifications are. The Bible speak of effectively three classes of angels. Uh, there are uh, the cherubim and the seraphim, and then Michael is an archangel. Um, we recognize that Lucifer, who would become Satan, was an anointed cherub, a cherubim. He sought to exalt himself above God and so had rebelled. And again, we'll talk more about Satan, his motivations and his tactics in a later date. And suffice us to say, Satan here, who had already fallen uh, at the time of Genesis chapter 3, sees an opportunity to gain ground in the battle that he is now waging against God if he can get the crown of God's creation and over whom God had given dominion of the earth, if he can get that man in this state of, of unconfirmed holiness to choose him, Satan, rather than to choose God, to go his way rather than God's way, then he sees a means by which to encroach into God's kingdom and to bring about a possibility of him establishing his own kingdom in rebellion to and contradiction to God. So let's read about it together. We're here in Genesis chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 6, the Bible says this, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day that ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Now, we'll be back to this passage several times over the coming months, because in many ways it is the template for a major element of spiritual warfare. If you want to understand Satan's tactics, he has not strayed too far from Genesis chapter 3. And he doesn't have to, because we keep falling for it. And so we'll find, in, as, we, as we study Satan's tactics again and again and again, uh, as we come back to Genesis chapter 3, we see Satan here give a promise of personal wellness and provision apart from God. That he's, he's promising that mankind has the capacity within himself. And notice Satan never says anything here about following him. He's only here, he's exalting man. Humanism is what we call this today. He is saying that man has what, it, what, he take, what, what he has or what he needs in himself and that God is holding man back. Satan never brings himself into this temptation. He's saying God is holding you back, Eve, and God is holding you back, Adam. God is, God is uh, withholding from you something that is good. God is, is, is uh, stripping from you personal agency. This is about you. This is about your potential that God is holding back. This is about your opportunities that God is standing in the way of. I can give you what you seek. 
I can give you the template upon which to paint your own picture, Adam and Eve. I'm not going to tell you what to do. You can be your own God. And this is Satan's promise. It's been that way from the beginning. Satan could not, with Adam and Eve, rely upon their flesh because they were not, they didn't yet have a sin nature. But he could appeal to their humanity and perhaps deceive them into trying to fulfill the desires of their own humanity in means outside of God's provision. We'll come to a point where we compare and contrast the temptation of Adam with the temptation of Jesus. And we'll see that they were the same temptations. Only one man fell and one man prevailed. One man decided he would be enough, that he would do things his own way. The other said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So Eve is lied to. Eve is deceived. deceived. Once Eve hears the deceit, she sees the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and she views that tree differently now, whereas before it was forbidden. Now she sees it differently. Satan has planted some ideas into her mind, has reasoned with her in a sense, and now she starts to see that tree, which is the antithesis of the will of God, and she doesn't see it that way anymore. She begins to lust after that which is forbidden. She saw fruit now that was good for food, whereas before it was forbidden, now it is good for food, appealing to the lust of the flesh for satisfaction. She saw this fruit now as pleasant to the eyes, appealing to the lust of the eyes for pleasure. And she sees it as a means to become wise. It appeals to the pride of life. So the Bible says she ate. Now at this moment, this woman has done wrong, but in a marriage, the husband is the head of the wife. So though she had done wrong, they had not yet fallen. They had not yet sinned against God, for Adam had not yet confirmed or denied Eve's choice in this matter. But that came, and it would seem it came just moments later. Adam hearkened unto his wife. He yielded his headship. He gave up the responsibility. And as the Bible describes it later, Paul says that the woman was deceived, but Paul never says that Adam was deceived. Paul uses the reality that the woman was deceived as an appeal to, for her by the design of God to not be leader, a leader, to usurp authority of man, or, or to be a teacher in the church. But we don't find any mention of Adam being deceived. And when we get to Romans chapter 5, the Bible says, For as one man, as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. It was Adam who bore the responsibility. It was Adam who bore the accountability. It was Adam whose choice, which was not driven by deceit, but as best we can tell, was driven by rebellion. Eve was deceived. Adam liked what he heard. Eve was deceived. Adam wanted this. And when he partook of the fruit, when he knowingly rebelled against the living God, when he led his family into that decision, he also led humanity into that decision. And man and woman both fell. Then their eyes were opened. Seeing good and evil, and they were given, as they were given this moral agency, they were immediately separated from the life of God through their sin. That's death, right? So when God said, if you eat of this, you shall surely die, they did die. They were separated from the life of God. And Satan won a major victory in the spiritual battle which rages in the heavenlies, for he convinced the crown of God's creation, the delegated ruler over the created order, to follow the deceitful promises of Satan for personal agency through rebellion, rather than to follow the good and loving promises of God through willing submission. And Christian, this is the battle that has raged ever since. Don't fool yourself into thinking that this battle ended on that day. If you, if, it, uh, if, if you did so, you're mistaken, for it did not. God did not yield the fight 
God did not quit the battle. God did not abandon mankind to Satan's kingdom. And Satan did not win the, his kingdom on that day. There's a battle going on. This is the battle that is raging. So immediately, we see several things happen. First, God uh, cursed the serpent. God cursed Adam. God cursed Eve. He then expelled Adam and Eve from the garden, lest they eat of the tree of life, and they are confirmed in their sin for eternity. But the other thing that God did there is he put a plan of redemption in place. Skipping verse 7, continuing in verse 8 of Genesis 3, the Bible says this, And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard the vo thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he, this would be God, said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldst not eat? And the man said, The woman who thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me. And I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above the cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. From that very day, God prophesied to Satan that there would be a time when the seed of the woman would crush his head. That word bruise there literally speaks of crushing. It's a different word from bruising his heel, uh, in, in, in that, that next phrase. This prophecy was fulfilled through Jesus Christ on the cross for those that aren't familiar. This is the first prophecy of Messiah. This is the first prophecy of redemption. This is the first prophecy of the destruction of Satan and his plan and his kingdom. And it was coming at the hand of the seed of the woman. God, from this day on throughout history, will actively be working in the world to reveal himself to mankind, to call man to make the choice that Adam failed to make in the garden, to see the promises of God as greater than the promises of Satan, and then to choose by faith to commit their hearts to the promises of God and God's kingdom above the promises of Satan and Satan's kingdom. And this is the battle that is raging. This is the battle for the hearts of men. And Christian, you need to see this battle. When you see culture and what culture is doing, when you see the direction culture is heading, even in times, as you look back in history, even in times when culture was fairly well Christianized, which is not today, but even in times when, when culture was fairly well Christianized, you can still see the direction that culture is going, and it has never been the direction of the church. And whenever they've been going in the same direction, it's only because the church has been going in the wrong direction, because culture never changes direction. Culture always goes towards Satan. Society always goes his way. That is, the kingdoms of this world are always going Satan's way. It is his domain. If the church is walking alongside, it's only because the church is going the wrong way. Because I guarantee you, the kingdoms of this world are never going to turn. Now, a king may turn. A nation may repent. But the kingdoms of this world will always drift toward the one who owns them. Because power and glory, and honor, and money, and fame, these are things of this world. And these are the things which the upper echelons of society provide. They will always, they will always draw the world and those that love this world, the things that are in this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now again, I'm not, I'm not here telling you that we need to all sell everything that we have, dress in rags, and go live in a monastery somewhere and not touch the world. We'll get there. If we do that, we've lost. We are God's body, Christ's body. We have to be in the world if we're going to reach the world. But if we're of the world, we cannot reach the world. This is the battle. And we need to see this battle. We need to see it in our lives. We need to see it in our families. We need to understand where the compromises are, are, are coming from, where the dangers lie, where culture is trying to allure us, where culture is trying to allure others. We need to see those as battlegrounds. Not that we're fighting people, but we are fighting ideas, philosophies, ideologies, spiritual deceits. And take note of this very carefully. 
You and I do not find ourselves in a battle over the kingdoms of this world. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, call Satan the god of this world. Ephesians 2.2, 2, call Satan the prince of the power of the air. The kingdoms of this world are firmly in the grasp of Satan and will be until Jesus comes in his power at the end of this age to rule and reign in righteousness. At which point, in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, this is at the opening, this is the end of the second woe and the beginning of the third woe, which is the, the, the sixth trumpet. When that, open, when, when that happens, then we will hear these words in Revelation. Do I not have them up here? I don't have them up here. I'll read them to you. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's when we hear that. When those woes come to pass, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord. I'm not there yet. So we've set down the nature of this battle, that humans have chosen to follow Satan's lies and his authority and are thus born by virtue of Adam's sin into the kingdom of Satan, a kingdom we follow by nature and by choice until such a time as we are confronted with God's truth. And some make a choice to follow the promises of God's kingdom when they're confronted with God's uh, choice, or with this choice, a kingdom which they cannot see, which they must believe in by faith, they see the promises of this world, of Satan's kingdom, of the things that they can feel and they can touch and they can taste, and then they see the promises of God, and they by faith believe that the promises of God are greater than the promises of this world, and so they yield the promises of this world, they place them on the altar, placing higher in priority and favor the promises of God, and they are saved by grace through faith. And so there's a battle raging for the hearts of men, the kingdoms of darkness and the kingdoms of light fighting for the soul's of men. But even among those who have chosen to follow the promises of the kingdom of God by faith, this battle yet rages, does it not, Christian? The battle is not over when you accept Jesus as your Savior. If Satan cannot win your soul, if he cannot win the soul of a man or a woman, he will at least seek to make you ineffective for God's kingdom. If he can make you impotent, if he can draw you back, he may not have you for eternity, but if he can bring about in you or in the church a fundamental failure to be a testimony, to be a light, to be anything that we need to be in order to call others out of the light, then he knows he's still keeping souls. So now that we've seen what this war is about, what do the individual battles look like? I want to walk through just a couple of passages. We, again, we don't have enough time to walk through an extensive amount but a couple of passages that help us understand what the character of this battle can look like, how these things can play out. And I want to begin with Job. Job was a man who lived around, and perhaps a little bit before the time of Abraham. He was a man of great righteousness, a God who God had greatly blessed and protected. And we read this beginning in Job chapter 1, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast not thou made an hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hand and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only unto himself, upon himself, excuse me, put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. We gain many insights into the nature of the spiritual battle here. Note first, that when God asks Satan where he has been, he answered that he was prowling in the realm of his liberty. He was going to and fro throughout the earth. First Peter 5 tells us, Be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. This is what he is doing here. He is walking to and fro throughout the earth. He is seeking to destroy men. And then he enters into the throne, into the abode of God, into the presence of God, a place where he is no longer welcome at his own leisure. But when the sons of God present themselves before the Lord, uh, he enters with them. And notice, second, that the target of Satan's prowling is not the earth itself, but mankind. 
we get this picture from the carnal world that Satan is trying to bring about bad things on the earth and uh, God is trying to bring about good things in the earth. Not really. You know that the good things of the material world win more people to Satan's kingdom. If Satan was just pure evil, constantly bringing about destruction, um, that would be one thing. It would be pretty easy to fight him on those terms because the whole world would be against him. We don't want evil all the time. But if Satan comes as an angel of light, as the Bible tells us he does, if he comes with the, word, with the, the concepts of peace on earth and unity, if he comes with the concepts of safety and of man's best and of his definition of love and his definition of justice and his definition of peace and his definition of, uh, of, of all of these wonderful, wonderful words. And he says, these are all the things I want. Well, the man says, that sounds pretty good to me. It's not in those things themselves. It's in the manner in which he wants to bring them about. And so Satan is not targeting the earth. He's targeting men, the souls of men. Immediately after Satan told the Lord that he came from prowling, notice what God asked him. Have you considered my servant Job? God didn't say, have you considered, have you considered that region of the world? Have you considered an earthquake there? See how they handle that? Have you considered a hailstorm over there? Have you considered a hurricane there? No, he said, I see that you've been prowling throughout the earth, looking for, for people to accuse, looking for people to destroy, right? Have you considered Job? And Satan says, what about him? <laughs> you've protected him on every side. You've blessed him in every way. I can't touch that guy. A reminder that God is in the business of protecting his own. But then Satan, the great accuser, the father of lies, says, but here's the thing, God. I'm convinced that the only reason why he's serving you is because you're blessing him. You take all that away from him. You take away all of the material goods, all of the things that I normally give to people so that they'll be happy with me. That's what you're doing. You're just buying the affection of Job. That's what Satan does too, right? He buys the affection of, uh, of others with the world. He says, you're just doing what I do. You're buying his affection. The great accuser of the brethren. And God says, okay, I'll lift my hand. You can't touch him. You can't, you can't put forth your hand onto him. You can only touch his possessions. Let's see what happens. Interesting. God then gives Satan leave to afflict Job with the goal, of, in Satan's mind, of subverting Job's faith in God and the goal in God's mind of being glorified and Satan being rebuffed. And in this, we do see this third element of the spiritual battle. We also see, and we will see as we continue, that Satan can use the physical elements of this world as a part of this battle plan, for good or for ill. He can bring about evil things as he's about to do in Job's life. Job has already been blessed. Job's not going to hear the promises of Satan to have lots of blessing and wonderful things and say, oh yeah, I'll follow Satan. He's already gotten those from God. So Satan wants to tear down his faith by tearing down his life. Satan can do that. Or Satan can go the other way, right? Satan can promise a man all the kingdoms of this world, power and money and fame and glory, whatever he wants. It's just a, it's a currency that Satan can use if only the, the, the people of this world will follow him. So, the spiritual battle often involves physical elements. Don't lose sight of that, Christian. People, relationships, possessions, emotions. The spiritual battle involves these. When you're dealing with emotional instances, physical instances, relational instances, material instances, gain or loss, don't think that the spiritual battle is not raging there. Don't lose sight of the fact that that paycheck that came or didn't come, that that relationship that is strained or isn't strained, that these things are neutral in the battle. What's going on here? Does it bear the marks of God or does it bear the marks of the kingdom of this world? What is it producing in you? 
Is there a materialistic kingdom of this world mindset that's being produced through the blessings which you are now encountering? Those are probably not from God. Satan can bless you too. He can. If it will draw you away, he can make you successful. He can make your business successful. He can, he can bring about great circumstances if it will only draw you away from the true and living God. This is his, this is his domain. Money, power, fame, influence. This is Satan's currency. It's not to say it's always that way. We have to discern the spirits, whether they be of God. But one thing we can know, there is a spiritual battle at hand. Notice how this plays out as Job continues, verses 13 to 19. And there was a day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And there came a messenger unto Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the asses feeding beside them and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, the fire of God is fallen from heaven and hath burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, the Chaldeans made out three bands and fell upon the camels and have carried them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of, of the sword and I only am escaped to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house and fell upon the young men, and they are dead, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Now, from an earthly human perspective, what we find here is evil men and natural disasters. Two groups of evil men and two unique natural disasters. You had the Sabaeans, you had the Chaldeans, you had the fire from God, which would probably be lightning in this instance, uh, and you had wind. And they brought about upon Job terrible misfortunes. If we had not already had the curtain peeled back and recognized that God was giving Satan leave to do something, was giving Satan leave to do some influencing in this world, whereby Satan could lay it upon the hearts of evil men to go and do something evil, and there was no restraining force of God because God had lifted that hand of restraint and that hand of protection upon Job so that these evil men could do these evil things. And, if, and, and so, that, so that there could be brought about God, God, we don't know exactly how it works. We know that God controls the elements. Uh, God allowed some of the various elements of this of, of this world, the elements of weather to affect at, a, at the right time and in the right way, the circumstances of Job's uh, material possessions and relationships in order to bring about this terrible, terrible set of circumstances. And if we were to continue in the text, we'd find that Job did not relent here. The Bible says, Then Job arose and rent his mantle and fell down on the ground and worshipped and said, Naked came out of my mother's womb and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not curse the Lord with his mouth. And so Satan returns and would be given leave by God to go farther. Satan says, well, yeah, sure. I touched all of the stuff he owned and it didn't affect him because he doesn't care nearly as much about the things he has. But if you allow me to afflict his life, God says you can afflict him, but you cannot kill him in a further attempt to cause him to fail. And so Job got sick. Job was brought into a place of physical suffering as an outworking of satanic temptation by the leave of God. And while each of these evils has a temporal explanation and a material cause, well, maybe it was just evil men. Maybe it was just uh, natural disasters. Maybe it was just uh, Job getting sick. We recognize from the text that there's something deeper going on here, Christian. There was a battle raging. There was an attempt by the forces of darkness to destroy the faith and faithfulness of this child of light. Now, I mentioned at the beginning that this understanding must be tempered by wisdom. We should not see every stub toe and paper cut as a direct result of the devil. 
Not to mention the fact that God is able to bring about afflictions for his own purposes. So it's not necessarily true that every time I get sick, it's the devil at work. Maybe it's God at work. Because every branch in me that beareth fruit, he purgeth it that it may bring forth more fruit. The branches that are connected to the vine must be trimmed back. Trials and temptations refine us and bring us to a place of greater usability. So we can't say that every trial or temptation is of the devil, per se. But we do need to gain insight into the interplay here between the physical and the spiritual. That physical conditions and circumstances can and indeed often do connect to some degree of spiritual warfare. And also that spiritual choices in these battles can have physical and temporal as well as spiritual consequences. That the choices that I make, that the manner in which I respond can have physical consequences, but they can also have spiritual consequences. What does it all mean? God and Satan are not passive observers in this world. He and his demons are active. They want you to live in utter uselessness Satan and his demons want you to live in utter use, uselessness for the kingdom of God. They want to win you. They want to win the hearts of your children. And not only do they have the spiritual resources to fight this battle, but they have all the resources of the unbelieving world. Their might, their power, their kingdoms. The many whose minds are blinded to the truth, who follow the lies of Satan willingly and joyfully. Men whose hearts can be filled with Satan's lies and thus be compelled to act against the followers of truth. But there are other insights into the spiritual battle we know from Scripture as well. We know that Satan is not the only one fighting. There was a day when the king of Syria came up against Elijah, the prophet of God. And the intent was that he would be destroyed. And so the king of Syria sends his armies and they surround the city where the prophet is. Elisha's servant wakes up and he comes out of the tent in the morning and he sees this huge army surrounding the city and he's filled with fear over the temporal circumstances they find themselves in. But remember that time before God allowed Satan to afflict Job where Satan said, look, I can't touch this guy because he is protected by you. Well, Elisha's servant is fearful and he comes to Elisha and he says, we're doomed. And Elisha says this, in 2 Kings 6, verse 16 and 17. He answered, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. Nathaniel preached on this not too long ago. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. The servant of Elisha could not see it, but the mountains were surrounded by angelic hosts protecting the man of God. That man was invincible as long as God wanted him to be. We see another insight into the spiritual battle in the prayers of Daniel. I'm going to skip some verses here, but we read in Daniel chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, a thing was revealed unto Daniel whose name was called Belteshazzar. And the thing was true, but the time appointed was long. And he understood the thing and had an understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant bread, neither came flesh nor wine in my mouth, neither did I, I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. Skipping to verse 10. And behold, an hand touched me, which set me upon my knees and upon the palms of my hands. And he said unto me, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto thee, and stand upright, for unto thee am I now sent. And when he had spoken this word unto me, I stood trembling, skipping to verse 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. Now I am come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people in the latter days, for yet the vision is for many days. I probably shouldn't have skipped verse 12 in this instance. Uh, Daniel is fasting and praying. God sent an answer. The very beginning, when Daniel immediately began to set his heart toward fasting and praying about the nature of these events, God sent an answer. But this angel that unto whom was uh, uh, un, un, uh, this angel who was sent to Daniel, there we go, uh, was with, withheld, withstood by one that the angel calls the Prince of Persia. It would be some sort of demonic entity 
that was assigned to the region of Persia, that was assigned over that kingdom. And he was withstood from, from bringing that message to him for a full 21 days. And at the end of that 21 days, that Michael the archangel actually had to come and assist in the battle in order that this angelic messenger from God could finish getting this message to Daniel that, that God had for him. This was the conflict that was raging in the spirit realm over the fasting and the prayers of a righteous man. Now, our time is short today. We don't have time to go through everything, but these things are happening. We don't know. And, and, and the fact that the Bible does not give us deep insight into it is telling in itself. God has given us what we need to know. We don't need to get too deep into the weeds. And I, I, I so strongly encourage you to be careful here. I've mentioned this before. You can go to any number of resources that have Christian in the title, and they'll tell you about the echelons of Satan's hierarchy, and they'll tell you the names of demons over certain territories, and they'll talk to you about territorial praying and praying against certain names and rebuking demons and whatnot. And as we talked about it before, take note, if anybody says, I rebuke you, at best they're ignorant. And they are on dangerous ground if they are seeking to rebuke demonic entities in themselves. For Jude tells us not even Michael the archangel does that. But he says, the Lord rebuke thee to Satan when he was contending over the body of Moses. We need to be careful here. I also mention, when you get all of these echelons, when you have people who are giving you the, the, the hierarchy of satanic forces, where are they getting that from? people who have come out of the occult or people who are in the occult, former Satanists or Satanists. If Satan is the father of lies, I am not going to build my theology on what he has told people. If demons are liars, I am not going to build the essence of my operation as it relates to the spirit realm on what demons have told people. I'm not going to do that because that is a recipe for... If Satan knows that he can just give us a, some sort of... If he can throw a hierarchy out there and we're going to spend all of our time wasting our time on, on writing books and having conferences and, and, and investing our time and effort into something that does not even exist, that he made up simply to pander to Christian, par paranoid Christians. He's good with that. He's good with that. He can do that. I'm not saying that the people who are saying that Satan taught them these things or that they learned these things from the occult are liars. I'm saying that they learned them from the occult. If God had wanted us to know, he probably would have put it in his book. And so we need to be careful. We need to be careful with things that God has not seen fit to reveal. And God has not peeled back a great deal of the spirit realm, but he's peeled back enough for us to know it exists and that there's a battle raging, and that it's a battle over the hearts and souls of men. It's a battle over whether or not this church will be effective. It's a battle over whether or not your children will follow the faith. It's a battle over whether or not uh, th there, there will be success in another generation. And by the way, the distractions from that battle are not always bad things. We need to be aware of this. Now let's go to the New Testament. All I'm going to do here, I'm just going to hit these. I'm not really going to explain them. I'm going to hit it. I'm going to hit it. And I'm going to hit it. All, and we'll, we'll, we'll hit a lot more of these verses over the next several months. But what I want to show you is that the battle is still raging. That, that, that the devil is still working. He's working in this age as he's worked in other ages. He's still fighting. And as we look into the New Testament, we find the apostles acknowledge the devil at work. 1 Peter 5, verse 8 and 9. I quoted verse 8 already. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour, whom resists steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. That warning tells us the devil's busy. Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 12, of course, we'll spend time on this. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. 
For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. The devil is at work. That is where the battlefield is. That is where the battle is raging. You may not see it, but it's happening. And, it, and may I make this abundantly clear. If you yield the spiritual distinctions of the battle because of the physical distinctions of a battle, you've lost. Let, uh, may I bring this close to home? I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to. If you're so busy fighting the physical battle of politics right now that you have yielded the spiritual distinctions of righteousness and testimony, Satan has won. If the Christian church in this age is so busy trying to maintain the freedoms that this country has established, that they give up the righteousness and the testimony of God, that they get into the mud and they lie and they cheat and they steal and they, they do these things in order to win, we've lost anyway. We talk about communism. And we say that communism doesn't care where the chaos comes from. They just want chaos. Communism is the direct ideological child of humanism and, and, and thus Satanism. Satan doesn't care where the chaos, the anger, the fear, the violence, the anxiety comes from. He just wants it. If you're walking around completely depressed, anxious, fearful, and angry, Satan is having his way with you, Christian because the spiritual battle is raging and you have yielded the distinction of your side. You have yielded the power of the cross because this world is not your home and you are allowing the conditions of this world to put you into a state that is completely contradictory to the fruit of the Spirit of God. Now, if I can fight the Lord's battle and the physical battle at the same time, praise God, let's do it but don't give up the spiritual for the physical. Don't do it. Satan wants that. Your battle is not against the people in Washington. This is not where the battle lies. The battle is for the souls of men. Kings come, kings go. Nations come, nations go. It's going to happen at some point unless the Lord comes first. Now, we don't want it to happen today. And we have the means at our disposal to fight that battle and, and to the degree that we can do it, but not at the expense of your faith or your testimony. Those, there's so many people out there right now who are afraid, who are depressed, who are confused, who are fearful. I already said fearful, but that's the big one. Who are despondent. And we have the answer. But are you show, when they look at you, do they see any difference that might tell them you have something that they might need? Or do they see another angry, fearful, despondent, anxious person and say, he's just like me? Might have the same solution, might have the opposite solution, but... It's the same feelings. Is your hope just as much in your outcome as their hope is, is in theirs as it relates to an election, as it relates to a government system, as it relates to a, a nation? Again, I'm not calling any of us to yield the wonderful blessings of what we have. But we have a higher loyalty, Christian. What if this time of fear and despondency and doubt and dread and anger might bring many sons unto glory. If we can stay out of the fray, let me say it a different way, if we can stay above the fray, live on that plane that God has called us to live on, of joy, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 5. Defraud ye not one another, except it be with consent for a time. This is in regard to the physical ministry of a husband and wife one toward another, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. There are certain particular desires of the flesh, whether that be for food, whether that be for intimacy, whatever it might be, 
and Satan can take those things and get a handle on you through them if, if you're not careful. But God has given us the means by which in his righteousness to fulfill those human needs and urgencies in order that we might not have those weaknesses, those chinks in our armor that Satan can use. Because we see here that Satan wants to use them. 2 Corinthians 2, verses 10 and 11. To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgive anything to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Paul says Satan is at work in the churches. We are going to offer grace and forgiveness and love one toward another, lest Satan be able to use our unforgiveness, our bitterness, our resentment, our anger, our unwillingness to bring about reconciliation as a means by which to destroy us. He's working, Christian. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, which who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Satan is busy pouring his lies into the minds of people and convincing them of these lies, lest they hear and obey the truth. Satan is doing that. The God of this world is doing that. 1 Thessalonians 2.18, Wherefore we would have you have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. Paul said, I want to come to you, but Satan has been busy. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse, beginning of verse 2, just for context, and then into verse 6. Regarding pastors, a bishop then must be, and in verse 6, not a novice, lest being filled up with pride he fall into the condemnation of the devil that a pastor who is a novice, a man who is unskilled, who is not established in the faith, can be lifted up with pride at the, at the nature of his position, at the nature of his authority, at the nature of his opportunity, and then he can be, Satan can use that and can rip him to shreds, can bring him under condemnation and bring about failure. And by the way, when a pastor fails, usually he's not the only one that goes down with the ship, right? 1 Timothy 5, verse 15, for some are already turned aside after Satan. Pastor, there's no context there. Well, this is speaking of widows and the danger that they, if they are young and without family or purpose, they might become idle, tattlers, busybodies, and selfish. So Paul calls for the young widows to marry, to bear children, and to guide their house, lest they turn aside after Satan into busybody, tattling, idleness of mind and of body, and selfishness. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves of God, peradventure, will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him at his will. He's busy, Christian. James 4, verse 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Implicit in that is that he's near, that he's trying, he's knocking at that door, he's rattling the windows, he's checking every nook and cranny to find a way into you, into your heart, into your mind, into your priorities, into your desires. And it doesn't matter what he's going, he'll use whatever he can, as long as it's, as long as it's on the table, he'll use it to get to you, if he can. The list could go on, of course. This list is not for us to study today only to understand that God's instruction to the church through the apostles is filled with exhortations that we would understand that there is a battle raging in the heavenlies and that this battle is over the souls of men to keep unbelievers blinded to the truth and to keep believers impotent on the battlefield through discouragement, through condemnation, through temptation, through confusion, through fear, through shame, through guilt, through loss. And before we can ever study how to fight the battle, we must acknowledge that it exists that it's real. We must see it. Like Elijah and his servant, it's my prayer that God would open our eyes to the reality of the warfare that is raging around us so that we can step into every day and every circumstance and every interaction aware that there is a battle going on in the hearts and minds of men. And you don't know what that battle is all the time. I don't know the battles that are raging in your heart all the time when you come to church on a Sunday. You don't know the battles that are raging in my heart, but we know, I, I know it's happening. I know there's struggles over faith. I know there's struggles over relationships. 
I know that there's, I, I know that we're dealing with, I'm dealing with as well, the struggles as it relates to the direction of our country and the decisions that are being made and what's happening. I, I, we, we know that these things are happening. The question is, how can we fight the spiritual battle? What do we do in order to keep the minds and hearts of God's people focused in a time when we know that Satan wants to just take what's going on right now and rip you to shreds and bring you down and break you down and, and say, I'm going to now find a solution in myself and not wait on the Lord. We know that this battle is raging. Parents, you who have been through it, you know what battles are raging in the, in, in, in the lives of, of, of parents with young children. You know what they're going through. You know the discouragement. You know the weariness. We talked last week in Sunday school, how to minister to your pastor. Told you, gave you a little bit of insight into that. A couple of guys here, fathers who are pastors, you know a little bit of that. You know the spiritual battles that I'm confronting. Maybe right now things seem good. Maybe I think things are good. Maybe things are good. Uh, but, but, but if the battle's not here, a battle will come. And, and battles have come before. Are we fighting on this plane? Do we see this plane? Are we operating on this plane? Are we, are we, are we, are, are, are we understanding it? Our families, our congregation. 1 John 5, verses 4 and 5 says this, For whosoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? The Bible says that faith is the victory that overcomes the world. There's a song of, of, of that title. This is not new, and this might even sound trite. It might even have been that just now, upon hearing this ever common and misunderstood word, faith, your spirit just kind of shut off. Aha, just have faith, Christian. Click, okay, I've heard that one before. But here's the thing, faith is the victory. Faith is gonna look like obedience. Discipline, submission, endurance, love one toward another, provoking one another to love and good works. Faith is going to look like assembling and so much the more as we see the day approaching. Faith is going to look like a determination that we're not going to allow the considerations and concerns of this world to override the things of the world to come. But if any of those things are going to come, if this victory is ever going to come, it's going to begin with a determination that your heart and that you are going to have ears to hear the word of God and then what God's word says, you're going to believe and what you believe you're going to do. And if you're there, then you're already on the path to victory and now you just have to learn how. And so the call this week, if we want to say it this way, is right here. The call this week is that you make sure that you're seeing the spiritual battle for what it is. And that as it comes to defeating the enemy, and winning this spiritual battle, you have positioned your heart in such a, a way that over the next many, well, couple of months, as we talk about the deceits and the tactics of the enemy and the weapons and the tactics of victory, that you're willing to listen, to trust, and to obey. Because it has to start with a willingness and a determination to do so. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. But if we're ever going to win the battle, we must first commit to winning it God's way. Let's close in prayer. Father, I pray for God's people. Help us to see the spiritual battle at hand. Help us not to get so distracted with the physical whether that be the physical problems or whether that be the physical successes. Guard us from materialism. Guard us from so much success that we lose sight of our need for you. Guard us from such ease and idleness that we become lazy, apathetic, Guard us as well from being broken down by suffering, pain, and loss. Guard us 
from being so heavily weighed upon that we abandon the ship over our fears and anxieties and frustrations of what could come or because we lose sight of the one who is in control even if we don't see it or don't feel it. Protect us from satanic attack and opposition from him and his minions. Father, open our eyes to the battles at hand. Open the eyes to the battles that are raging in our children's lives. Open our eyes to the pain of others, which is a direct consequence, uh, when they are direct consequences in particular, of the spiritual battle. Give us wisdom to know how to help, how to fight, how to pray. Help us not to become cynical or pragmatic. Grant us that we would stand firm upon the promises of the word of God. Anchor our souls in them so that on the sea, when the seas rage, or when those seas are calm, it can be well with our soul. And Father, be glorified in our church. Make our church over these next couple of months effective in the spiritual battle. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.